The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word and turn with me for our concluding study in the Advent series of Isaiah, chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7. Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I've really received some interesting uh, Christmas cards and emails and notes and various comments that you are making on this text that we've been in now for uh, five sermons. This is our fifth one, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, with the focus on the throne names of Jesus who has been born to save us from our sins. May I mention to you, I know next uh, Lord's Day will be the beginning of a new year. uh, We'll just have begun it. And one of the things I love to encourage you is to have a personal and family time in God's Word. And devotional assets or devotional aids are uh, in our bookstore for you. Uh, My favorite still to this day is William J. Morning Exercises. Uh, I highly commend it to you. I also commend to you... um, um, Debbie has researched about three or four other devotional books that will be there in the bookstore if you'd like to get those. Table Talk is something I use from Ligonier Ministries. And um, and then she has found also a journal Bible, which is chronologically, the Bible in its chronology. When each book is written, you just work through it chronologically with a place for notes as well. And it, that is a three-year enterprise because of the journaling that takes place as well. So those are available as you start the new year and pray that our God would grant to us Uh, His power and His presence to serve Him as a church on mission, on message, and in ministry. A great commitment to the Great Commission and a lifestyle and a culture of the Great Commandment where we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind and love one another. Loving our neighbor, loving one another, even as our Savior has loved us. Would you look with me in Isaiah chapter 9? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as in the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. One of the moments that I love when I take people um, on discipleship tour that I do in Israel called Learning the Bible in the Land of the Bible, Lord willing, we'll have one this year as well. One of my favorite moments is when we are in the area of the Galilee, is, um, is a trip that we make to a city that eventually was called the City of Dan. Uh, the tribe of Dan had moved up north. They weren't supposed to, but they did. They took over that city, and they named it for themselves. It was called the tribe of Dan. But before any of that happened, that city had been visited by Abraham, then called Abram. And Abram, who was dwelling uh, in the promised land, had received word that there had been a uprising of a number of kings against a number of other kings, and part of it ended up with his nephew Lot having been captured and taken into slavery and exile. Well, Abram pulled together his 318 men, trained men. He had his own private army by that time, and he went up tracking them down, and he finally overcame them at the city of Dan. Now, one of the things I love is when I take people on a tour of the city of Dan, I always go backwards. I start um, uh, at the place of the pagan altars and show what happened there and work their way around. And the last thing we look at are gates. And the amazing thing is you're standing there looking at the gates of mud bricks of the city of Dan that the same gates is what Abram rode through to rescue Lot. Boy, you're talking about a feeling that I get. Historians, they go crazy at a moment like this. We just about melt. And uh, most everybody else really enjoys that moment because you know you're looking at something that uh, 4,000 years ago, that's where Abram, that's where he went, right through those gates. And as you go through them, as you go through that moment and you sense it, you then immediately come to a Genesis 14 moment. Because after this is finished, he then goes back. And as he returns, he comes to a place called the Valley of Shaveh. And the Valley of Shaveh was also called the King's Valley. It was a place where kings met and kings uh, were, uh, uh, kings were anointed and kings were installed. It's actually, it's actually uh, what's also called in your Bible the Kidron Valley. It's also called uh, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's the King's Valley, and it is there that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah 
made arrangements, and Abram met a king in that valley. It's recorded for you in Genesis chapter 14. The name of that king was Melchizedek. And he meets him. And he meets him and he bows and worships him. And he brings a tithe to him. And he not only brings a tithe and he worships, they sit down at a covenant meal of bread and wine. And then Abram returns. That event then passes into the narrative and we move along in the Abram's life. But that event is given to us, its significance is given for us in in the book of uh, Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, two times. We are informed of who this Melchizedek is. This Melchizedek is a king without a father. And this Melchizedek is a king without a mother. This Melchizedek is an everlasting king. And the book of Hebrews begins to make clear to us this was no ordinary king. In the Old Testament, there is move, there is moment after moment, moment after moment, where uh, we have God, through his son, making a pre-incarnation appearance. Those are called, theologically, we call those theophanies, pre-incarnate appearances of God. And many times they're called Christophanies because it is the second person of the Trinity that is the Christ who is making that pre-incarnate appearance. You find it throughout your Bible, most of the time noted with this phrase, the angel of the Lord. Or in, or in the book of Joshua, uh, the captain of the host. Uh, those are various names that give to us the, uh, the, the fact that there is a pre-incarnation appearance of God in the Old Testament for a very specific purpose. So those are what we call theophanies. Those are what we call Christophanies. Well, the book of Hebrews or the letter of Hebrews gives us every indication that that's exactly what Abram experienced, which would then, um, which would then, of course, make even more clear why he had the covenant meal with him, why he had, he tithed to him, and why the scriptures tell us he bowed and worshiped him. He worshipped him because this was no ordinary king. This was a Christophany. This was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, why is that there? Well, we've been looking at Isaiah. And Isaiah has given us what I believe is a foundational prophecy of the advent of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. It's kind of your foundational template concerning the advent of our Savior, of the messianic king and his messianic kingdom. But, and we have noted this was written 700 plus years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But now, hundreds and hundreds of years before Isaiah wrote the prophecy that defines the name Jesus. You shall call his name singular. We know what that name is. It was given to Joseph, wasn't it? You shall call his name Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. 
God has come to save. You shall call his name Yeshua for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the name that's above every name. Jesus, the name at which every knee shall bow. Jesus, the name whereby we call upon God in prayer. Jesus, name above all names. And then Isaiah says, this Jesus, this king, he has four glorious, definitive throne names. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And as glorious as Isaiah's prophecy is, as penetrating as prominent, as pervasive as it is in the New Testament, in the exposition of Christ our King. As marvelous as it is, amazingly, that prophecy had already been prophesied hundreds of years before Isaiah to Abraham at the Valley of the Kings as The Christ comes, and the writer of Hebrews tells us his name, Melchizedek, King of Righteousness. Here is the one who has the righteousness to save those in his kingdom. And the King of Salem, Salim. Shalom, King of Peace. This is the one who, when he appears, brings peace to the world. You can forget world peace, but you can preach of a Savior and King. Who brings peace to the earth, on the earth, even as the angels declared it to the shepherds hundreds of years after Isaiah. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with those With whom he is pleased. This is the glorious truth of a king. Who comes to bring peace to his people. In his nation. A royal nation. He is the king of shalom. He is the king of peace. I am so utterly, constantly amazed, drawn, invigorated, thrilled, and astonished by the depth and the breadth, the consistency and the integrity of God's Word as you see these themes run from a Genesis 14 through an Isaiah 9 to a Luke 2 and then to the coming of the Prince of Peace when peace will reign in a new heavens and a new earth. And so that's the text we've been in. Here is Isaiah making a statement. And what Isaiah has done is for for eight chapters, 
he has displayed two things in this, in this uh, glorious prophetic book. He has displayed two things, eight chapters. Number one, the holiness of God. Go read Isaiah 6. And number two is the sinfulness of sin and its consequences. Darkness, death, despair, gloom, anguish. Then he arrives at Isaiah 9 and that wonderful word that I love it every time it appears in the Bible. But, but all of sin's gloom, all of sin's death, all of sin's darkness, all of sin's dominion, a king is coming to save his people from sin's darkness, sin's death, sin's despair, and sin's dominion. And he even starts off with the very picture they would understand. All of the oppression of sin that had come down as waves upon Israel because of their sinfulness. It all had come through Naphtali. It all had come through Zebulun. Those two northern tribes. It was there that the Assyrians would sweep in. It is there that the Babylonians would sweep in. It is there that the Medo-Persians would sweep in. It is there that the Greeks, after Isaiah, the Greeks will sweep in. It is there that after them will come the Romans and it sweeps in. But where? That door opened to sin's dominion and darkness and oppression and its yoke and its bondage. Now, in that same place, joy unspeakable will break out in Galilee of the Gentiles. And there is no doubt of where he is pointing. Jesus of Nazareth, who taught in the region of the Galilee. And now, sin's gloom, sin's despair is being displaced by his glorious victory and grace. Sin's darkness is being dismissed because of the light of Christ. Sin's death will be overcome because of the victory of this Christ. Sin in all of its in all of its despair and darkness, perhaps its greatest weight, sin's dominion. Men and women born impotent, dead in their sins. He will bring new life and you can be born again. He will break the rod of the dominion of sin. He will destroy the yoke of the dominion of sin. Here is coming a Messiah king with a kingdom. And those whom he brings from all the nations into this kingdom, every single one of them he will bring and he will deliver them from their sins and all of its consequences, its death, its despair, its dominion. He will defeat all of it. And then the text tells us he'll wrap up all of the enemies of God's people those battle, those battle weapons he'll wrap up and they will become fuel for the fire of hell. Even as he welcomes his people into a new heavens and a new earth.
What a king. What a kingdom. Well, who is he? Who is this king? And Isaiah goes on to tell us, boy, don't miss this. Unto us. Now, there's a number of things that could be said there. Because this king, this king will have an adopted father, Joseph. Will have an appointed mother, the virgin, Mary. This king, as it says in the text, is of the line of David. In other words, you got a king coming through Israel. More focus through the tribe of Judah, who is given the scepter of the king. More focus to the family of Jesse. More focus, not only to the family of Jesse, but to the line of David. As Mary and Joseph both trace their lineage in David. But it doesn't say unto Judah, unto Israel, unto um, unto uh, Jesse, unto Joseph, unto Mary. It says unto us. A child is born, his full humanity. Unto us, a son, not just any son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Full deity. Who is this messianic king? None other than the incarnate Christ. Oh, please grab it. Please grasp it. Not a temporary appearance of Christ in a Christophany. Not an epiphany of Christ only. Here is the eternal incarnation. Jesus, God, dwells as spirit. Now, having made pre-incarnate appearances temporarily transitional for teaching purposes, now comes as a man for us, one of us, and forever like us, and we will forever be made like him. The incarnation does not end in his ascension. He has that glorified body for eternity. And we shall behold him. God is accomplishing this. This baby, born of the virgin, this baby is the messianic warrior king. Christ has come. Fully God, fully man, to save his people from their sins. Well, is he able? Does he know how? Certainly he knows how. And what Isaiah then goes is defines the name singular, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, Yahweh has come to save, now defines this prophet, priest, and king. Oh, we have seen an Old Testament appearance of him in Melchizedek, prophet, priest of the Most High God, he is called, 
king of righteousness, king of peace, but now he comes incarnate. Who is this one in that manger? This is the king, the king of kings. This is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is a king, not like other kings, they have to go get a counselor. This king is his own counselor. This king is wisdom personified. This king needs no counselor. For who has become his counselor? Who has advised him? Who has taught him? Our thoughts are not his thoughts. He is beyond us. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. This king doesn't secure a counselor. He is his own counselor, and he as counselor is incomparable. He is the wonderful counselor, the counselor full of wonder because there is none like him. This is wisdom personified. So he knows what the problem is, our sin. He knows what the consequences of those problems are. Darkness, death, dominion, destruction, Chaos. He knows what it produces. And he knows there is only one way to defeat it. And that is for this king to humble himself. He doesn't dismiss his power. He knows when to use it and how to use it. And now with power, he humbles himself to be found in appearance as a man. And humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. This wonderful counselor knows the incarnation is there to get to the crucifixion and the atoning death. And he knows with that victory will come a resurrection. And he knows with that resurrection will come an ascension. And he knows when that, with that ascension will one day bring a consummation when he returns. This is the wonderful counselor. Well, it's one thing to be a strategist. It's one thing to have all the wisdom. But can he pull it off? Oh, yes. He is mighty God. El Shaddai has come. Isn't it interesting? In his wisdom as counselor, he humbles himself. And now, with his power demonstrated in his humiliation, he will accomplish our redemption, and then he will be exalted. Because this is the mighty God. He not only knows how to save, wonderful counselor, he is mighty to save. Well, what will he do? The world is, is absolutely littered with the histories of kings who have won victories. And every one of them usually, eventually, time after time, lends to ter- leads itself, because of the corruption of that power, leads itself to ter- tyranny leads itself to a renewed and different oppression, leads itself to um, exploitation. Not this king. He's got a third name. 
It's a throne name. It's not a parental name. It's a parental picture to give us a throne name. He's the father. He's the everlasting father. This king will do what fathers are called to do. He will provide. He will protect. And he will guide. This king will provide for his people a new heart. They'll be born again. This king, as the everlasting father, will not only provide for his people a new heart, he'll provide for them a new record. He'll wipe the old record with his shed blood away. And this king of righteousness will give them his righteousness so that every time God, his father, looks upon them, the everlasting father king will have given us a perfect righteousness and he sees that perfect righteousness. Therefore, we are accepted in him, the beloved. He'll not only provide a new record. He'll not only provide a new heart. He'll provide a new life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he will provide not only a new record, not only a new heart, not only a new life. He'll give them a new family. A family who were not a people but have become the people of God. A family who are united in him to the praise of the Father and the power of the Spirit. Bound in love and kept in the bond of peace. Peace. By the way, he'll also provide them a new home. It's a new heavens and a new earth that he's gone away to prepare even while today In this broken world, he's preparing us for it. Then finally and completely, what do we know about this king? He is the prince of peace. He is the one who says, peace, I leave with you. This king has for us a royal inheritance, and that is peace. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, he's very specific. Check him out in John. My peace, I leave with you. And he brings a comparison. My peace, I leave with you. My peace... I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give. The world's peace and world peace is a figment of our imagination. Peace on earth comes through the one who came from heaven to the earth. And just as he did not come with a coalition or accommodation or negotiation, he came as the warrior king to humble himself and win the victory and secure for us as the everlasting father, everlasting peace.
And if you and I desire to see peace in the earth, it doesn't come from the earth. It comes from him. Let's get about the Great Commission. What world peace is going to come from world leaders? The kings of this world, whether they're called president or whatever, are they going to bring this peace? They're incapable of even bringing it to their families. Look what happens to their marriages. They, like all around us, including us, are incapable of this peace that Christ alone brings. And Christ brings a peace that puts us at peace with God legally and puts us at peace with God relationally and puts us at peace with God Actually, in life, be anxious for nothing. We have peace with God legally. Therefore, having been, Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We were who he, we who were his enemies. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you now have peace with God. And more than that, in a sin broken, sin tossed world and us in bodies that are moving from dust to dust, And with all that is around us, we are being renewed internally every day. And we have within us the peace of God. The Bible tells us, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord, I say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to the Lord. And what's the result? The peace of God in Christ will guard your heart and your mind. Think of your heart with a door and a sentry at the front of the door. When you are in Christ, you not only have peace with God, you've got Christ, the Prince of Peace, standing guard over your heart. And he is repelling all else. And then he brings you to himself that you might have peace with God as the Prince of Peace, the peace of God, Because he brought you to himself with the gospel of peace. That Christ, our Prince of Peace, has made us right with God. God is right within us. And therefore we have peace with God and we have the peace of God now and forevermore. Well, let me get to a takeaway with you. I know what some of you have been thinking today. 
one service, no Sunday school, no Sunday night. Is he going to add on? No, but I do want to add this to your life from this glorious text. Let me just share it with you this way. Peace on earth is yours when Christ, the Prince of Peace, is yours. And Christ, the Prince of Peace, is yours when you are his and he is yours. Alone. Wait just a minute, Harry. I know you love Cindy. And y'all belong to each other, right? Oh, yeah. But that's, Jesus isn't added to that. Here's where you got to come to. No negotiation. We repent of our sins. Those were our weapons of cosmic treason against God. We confess them. We turn from them, not to do better. We turn from them to come to him. Because he did perfect. And he paid for all of those sins. And in their place, he gives us his righteousness. So we now come and surrender to him. I am yours. And you are mine. And by your grace, every day through your word and your spirit, help me put aside anything. Now, listen to me carefully. Anything and anyone that I would put in front of you, above you or beside you. And when you get there, then you can start enjoying your family. And your marriage. And your life. If you're just adding Christ into those things, it never works. They aren't able. Your spouse is not able to be your Messiah. Your kids are not able to be your Messiah. Your job can't make your life and bring love and joy and peace forever. You can have momentary moments with all of that. But if you want those to be meaningful, turn not only from our sins, but turn from anything that we would put above him, beside him, or before him. And you're saved in Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. And folks, listen to me. I'm not being a post-Christmas Day ogre on this. I really want you to enjoy your marriage. But you can't have your marriage unless Christ has you completely. Then peace can be brought to your marriage. Peace into our families. Peace into our relationships. And then we can actually become peacemakers in the world because we have the Prince of Peace from the heavens. Who came to bring peace on earth. Now we can be salt and light. Now you have a peace that passes. Understanding. Not as the world gives. But the peace that Christ gives to you. Don't you love 
Don't you just love the glorious truth that on that Christmas day, Jesus, who the incarnation was headed for the crucifixion. So you and I could have peace with God and the peace of God. And don't you love it? (laughs) When Christ is born, the prophecy is fulfilled in Bethlehem through Joseph, through Mary, and Jesus is born. And the angels bring the glorious, the glorious announcement to the shepherds. Now, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the King. And then the hosts of the angels, don't miss that word. The hosts of the angels gather and declare glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. Not everybody gets this peace. It's only those With whom he is pleased. Who are those whom he is pleased? Well, let me be a theologian for a minute. From heaven, it is the elect of God. From the earth, they manifest themselves by coming to Christ as Lord and Savior. God is pleased with all who are in his Son, who took His wrath from us upon himself. And when you come to him, now you have peace. He provides himself. The prince of peace. Host. Don't miss it. Host is an Old Testament term for army. The warrior king was in Bethlehem. The hosts of heaven had come. You've also met him outside of Jericho, didn't you? Where Joshua says, are you for us or against us? He says, wrong question. It's not whether I'm for you or against you. It's, are you with me? Are you with me? I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. And he has come to humble himself with his power to win the victory that we can have peace with God. So I just ask you, Isaiah says, born unto you, A child is given. Unto us a child is given. Unto us a son is born. I'm sorry. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The eternal son given. Everlastingly begotten. Then you get to the shepherds. And it shifts just a little. The angels say not... Unto us, they say, unto you 
A Savior has been born. May I just take it one other step. Have you yet confessed your sins and come to Christ? Because you know, unto me, a Savior has been given. And I come to him. Not to add to my life. He is my life. The Prince of Peace. In Him, right with God. And in Him, God is right within me. Let's pray. If you have never made that commitment to Christ, while we're closing in prayer, may I invite you just to come up here to the front of this sanctuary privately and confidentially with those who would pray with you. Don't you love the carol that says, born to bring the sons of earth to a second birth? Then I invite you to him. Jesus, we give you praise And we come to you, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And pray that you would do your work in our lives. We want you to come quickly. Let me just say that, please. Come quickly, Jesus. But when you come, find us faithful. When you come, find us serving you with love and joy and peace. Because you are at work in us and you are our life. But we do pray you would come quickly. But as this year stretches before us, if you have not yet come, would you help us walk catechized by your word, not the pundits of media, filled with your presence, not the fear and anxieties of this world. Jesus, send us your spirit that with power we might bear witness of Christ, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, the prince of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.